somebody who uh, I don't know if uh, I've talked to him since we've started the bat around. He's an old friend of mine when he used to write at USA Today uh, for a long, long time, and that's baseball writer extraordinaire. Now also a writing teacher at Johns Hopkins University, and that is Timmy Wendell. Timmy, how are you, my friend? Great, Stan. How you doing? It's, it's been good to a be long, on with it's, you. It's been a long, long time, my friend. <laughs> too long, my friend. So, <laughs> so you're a, a Hopkins writing teacher. Are you in the same writing program that John Barth used to run there? Um, yeah, we've kind of branched out, but yeah, technically yes. And um, I mean, you're uh, not just you're not just teaching sports writing, right? You're teaching no, you're teaching no, I'm writing. teaching both novels yeah. and. Nonfiction. I do have some sports writers that come through, but I've had an incredible cast of uh, former students. I mean, Will Potter, who's now at University of Michigan, Almakatsu, who's done some amazing thriller novels, etc. So uh, they're the folks that keep me going. Yeah, and I guess that that position, helping people bring out what they the talent that they have, and helping them hone that skill, is especially uh, fulfilling for you. Oh, very much so. Uh, It's uh, kept me going in two ways. I'm so proud of them. I think at last count I've had 12, 13 students do novels. I've had 20-plus do nonfiction books, and just to see them excel is great. And the other thing is that it's probably a good thing, Stan. It keeps me honest. So I I can't say one thing in the classroom and then go out and cut corners with my stuff so they they keep me they keep me on the road you know as as my career evolved i have to admit one of the things i take a lot of pride in is like a guy like an andy freed who used to do score updates mm-hmm. for me in the mid 90s he's been a play by play voice of the tampa bay rays for 8 years that's always what he wanted to do I gave him an an opening, so to speak, and he's kind of knocked the door down uh, by pursuing his dream, and he's at the top of his field, and it makes me feel good. Very much. I think it keeps us going. It keeps us young, Stan. Hey, I I always love to talk baseball with you, but in, in finding out about the release of the audio edition of Down to the Last Pitch, which is out there, I also came upon a book that you did that had nothing to do with sports, and that's Cancer Crossings. Could you tell me a little bit about the story? Because I know it's a very personal story that you told here with this book. Oh, I'd be happy to. And this was the first audio book I did. And I did it in a large part because it's such a personal story. And actually, it has several Baltimore connections. Dean Smith, who used to be at Johns Hopkins Press, uh, he ended up at Cornell. He's now at Duke. Uh, he's now at Duke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dean Smith at Duke. Something's wrong with Something's the world. Something's wrong with that. <laughs> That's very but funny. We were talking one time, and he reached out to me, and I've always wanted to do... I, I had a brother, no, this is a long time ago, um, 50-some years ago, who had leukemia. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a number of doctors. This was in Buffalo, New York, where where I grew up. And, there, and for a short amount of time, about three or four years, there was a number of doctors there. They called themselves the Cancer Cowboys. And this was back mid-60s, early 60s, when they weren't even supposed to take on, you know, things like childhood cancer uh-huh. or leukemia. They took childhood cancer from a 10% survival rate to its now 90% survival rate and just pushing back against the critics and such. And they kept my brother alive, Eric. Uh, he was only supposed to live about a year. Uh, he stayed alive for eight and a half, thanks to these incredible doctors. And so in talking with Dean and, and some other editors, I said, well, let's see if we can 
go do this. And I had a daughter in medical school at that point, too, uh, wow. in the area. And all of them said, you, you, you should try doing some kind of, you know, book off this, a memoir. And I'd mm-hmm. never done a memoir. And the race was on because all these guys were in their mid-80s, and I tracked them all down. And some of them, their stories are incredible. Um, Donald Pinkle, for example, is the guy who starts up St. Jude in Memphis. James Holland was uh, just a legend at Mount Sinai for many years in New York. And and it's funny, Stan, you, you know this. You, you do one project and you think, well, that's going to be kind of it. Right. I now go around the country speaking to Leukemia and Lymphoma Society chapters because they're starting up a new effort to get 100% cure mm. rate yeah. with childhood cancer. And, uh, and I'm kind of... I guess the ghost of Christmas past. I tell them, well, we made it this far 50 years ago. Why don't we take it the rest of the way? And it's been very fulfilling. Boy, that is an amazing story that those that group of doctors took it from 10% survival rate to 90%. That's just incredible. And, and they did it stand with um, such... I didn't realize it at first when I started Cancer Crossings and started the conversations with these doctors, but the amount of resistance and opposition they faced was incredible. If you looked in the pediatric handbook at this point, we're talking mid-60s, it was only a page and a half under leukemia, and it was pretty much make the comfort uh, patient as comfortable as possible. He or she probably won't be with us that much longer. And that was unacceptable to these guys. Was the resistance due to the fact that it would take research money from something else that was their baby at this point? or yeah. I mean, money's always a part of it, yeah. and I think money was a huge part. And also, we get so stuck in our way sometimes. Um, nothing had worked yep. with, say, leukemia. So it was pretty much, uh, you know, why waste our time? Why yeah. waste our money? Why waste our time on it? And these guys said that was unacceptable. And uh, And so much of what is a part of the success we've had fighting cancer these days goes back to them. The whole chemotherapy cocktail, uh-huh. so to speak, we're uh-huh. using multiple um, meds and, and some kind of sequence and such. These guys dream that up. And, uh, and you know, you look at the fine work going on at Johns Hopkins Medical, etc. A lot of that you can trace back to these half dozen doctors who, despite their peers saying you're crazy or yeah. we don't want any part of it, they they went ahead. My wife and I have become very friendly with a woman. Her name is Josie Schaefer, who heads the cystic fibrosis in the state of Maryland, the cystic mm-hmm. fibrosis. And they apparently have made some amazing new breakthroughs in cystic fibrosis. And I understand Duke has a trial going on on some treatment for ALS now that's showing some promise. So Yeah, and, and I think my hope is, I've been touring the country a lot in the last year, Stan, you know, with that book. Yep. I mean, it's winding down now, but I, and to, I don't want to crash too many sports metaphors and analogies, yep. but one of the things that um, I hope happens is there's incredible work going on all over the country. I hope that all these hospitals can kind of pull together and have a little bit more of a unified front. Yep. I get a little concerned that... Um, Everything's so siloed. You go to a Duke, you know, you go to a Roswell Park in Buffalo, you go anywhere, 
and they all kind of want to be number one. Well, they aren't all going to be number one if we're going to beat cancer. So, you know, some other people are going to have to be the support. I'll finish up with this on the medical aspect of our talk today. I think we saw all the movies, the dramas surrounding finding some type of cure for AIDS. And there were those silos where the, these people sort of let their ego of being the first and uh, first, you know, uh, kind of take over on, on something that significant. It, it's kind of disappointing on one small level that way. Yeah, and, and I think that, as you point out, often the last hurdle. Yeah. You know, the, the money's flowing in. Some of the technical advances are amazing, especially when you look back at what the Cancer Cowboys were doing um, 50 years ago, but it, it is, it's almost a team effort. Can the team come together and really reach um, the ultimate goal, which By is curing the, cancer? Before we, we go from the ridiculous to the sublime of talking about cancer crossings and we go to talk baseball, cancer, <laughs> cro- cancer crossings is available in audiobooks? Yes, with me reading it, which okay. um, frankly planted the seed about me even doing more audiobooks because, well, frankly, we had to go back. You know, it worked out pretty well, but at one point they said, we're going to have to go back and do pickups. I didn't even know what pickups meant right, when they were mentioning right, that. Right, and I was going, right. what, we're going out, what are we we're doing? We're going to cru- and, uh, cruising at a bar. We're going out <laughs> that's for right. pickups. Which bar are we going to? And, uh, but they said, no, this is, we're going to come back and fix the things you mispronounced and such. Okay. And I didn't realize until we went back in the studio uh, Stan, I had mispronounced almost every med, methadrexate, cytoxin, <laughs> donamycin. I now wake up in the middle of the night saying those. And and I must admit, once I was finished with that, I was like, geez, I probably just did the audio book for the, <laughs> most, the most problematic book of all that I've written. No, double play ball, I can do that, you yeah, know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and there had so to Cam be... Ripkin, I can say, you know, so, so it, 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 it seemed a, a lot easier after the, that. The amazing part is there's somebody listened to it and knew what the pr- correct pronunciations were. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think methadrexate, I had to say 50 or 60 times wow. in the pickups. And oh my gosh, I would, they would run the sentence, and then I, you know, you know, you know, yep. this part of the world much better than yep. me. And I'd have to say the word with kind of the right inflection, but pronounce <laughs> it correctly. And I got out of there that oh, night, God. and I just said, oh, "I need a drink." <laughs> hey, hey uh, speaking of needing a drink, uh, if you were a baseball fan in 1991, uh, we saw something that hasn't happened, hadn't happened before, and it hasn't happened since. We're two. Last place teams the year before battled to uh, to the bitter end in what was arguably one of the greatest World Series of all time, uh, the 1991 series between the uh, Atlanta Braves and the Minnesota Twins. Very much. You had two worse the first, which had never been seen before, and we had lightning struck twice and with the Twins and the Braves. And, and it was such a... Um, that's the first World Series I ever covered. I had covered baseball, you know, I covered playoffs and such before, but it was memorable. You had five games decided by one run. Mm-hmm. You had four games decided in the last at bat, and you had three games, including the game seven, which is a showdown between Jack Morris and John Smoltz, going the extra innings at zero zero. And um, and and I was also very fortunate that Roger Angel from uh, New Yorker just happened to be the guy I was sitting next to for most of those games in the, in the press box and the auxiliary press box. 
And I still remember Roger at one point had to be in game six just looking at me and just saying, this is incredible. Yeah. This is unbelievable. And you're just going, yeah. Cause, and then you, and then in going back and doing down to the last pitch, both the book and then later the audio book, talking with guys like Morris and Terry Pendleton and, you know, Kevin Tappany, I mean, it could, you know, goes on and on just to hear them talk about what it was like being a player in, in game after game where like one mistake is going to be the crucial part. And, uh, they still, I think, have nightmares about that a little bit. Well, I remember that series pretty well. Um, uh, you know, what's interesting to me is how many firsts baseball has. That was the first worst of first, and every home team won every home game in that yep. series. And we've just now, for the first time, had a World Series this past season where nobody won a home game. That's pretty remarkable, too. Yeah, and... Um... Yeah, in fact, in watching the recent, you know, Nats victory over Houston, I kept going, home team's got to win one of these games. <laughs> As you pointed out, it didn't happen at all. And uh, and I think, you know, play, you know, you're around players a lot, too, and, and they like to dismiss, I think, a lot of things that maybe are important. And one of them is home field advantage. And both teams in the 1991 series with the Twins and the Braves, I think had among the most riveting or marked home field advantages we've seen in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that old Metrodome in Minneapolis, I, I believe I lost some hearing in my right ear from just how loud it was in that crazy place. And then, of course, down in Atlanta, this was the start of the Tomahawk Chop and all yep. that that I still can't get out of my head sometimes. So, And, and the, athlete, you know, the players w would say, you know, this did spur us on. And that's why I find it kind of remarkable we just had a World Series where home field advantage didn't seem to mean much of anything. Was the 91 Series, did Ted Turner, and was he married to Jane Fonda at that time? Yeah. 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 That's and, pretty and amazing. Jane Fonda, despite her background and all, yeah, being you know, left-leaning right. politics, was doing the tomahawk chop in right. the stands. And you just like, oh, this is, this is strange. <laughs> You know, I was looking today just in prepping to, to get, get on with you and re-familiarize myself with it. Lonnie Smith, who had that incredible base-running blunder uh, in Game 7, uh, also hit three home runs in that World Series. It, it, you take that one play out, and, you know, fans will remember where he should have scored on Terry Pendleton's double in the gap. Right. And, and, and in a game which is 0-0, and both pitchers, Smoltz and Morris pitching lights out, both bullpens ready to go. That arguably could have been the only run needed. Outside of that gas, he uh, he had in a remarkable series, yeah, and um, you know did really really well. And and I think sometimes a lot was played up that you know, the shortstop, second base, and now block and um, and uh, oh gosh, I'm drawing a Greg, blank on Greg Gagne, Gagne, yeah, yeah. Du duped them out. But there was all kinds of fakery going on yeah. all over the field. I, I didn't realize till I was Dan Gladden, who was the left fielder for the Twins, talked a little bit about it, and then I looked at the footage. Dan Gladden did a great job of like looking initially out in left field that the ball, he was going to catch the ball. Uh -huh. He didn't move that much. Right. He just went back, put his glove up like he was going to catch it, and then Smith all messed up. He stopped, and right, um, right. and then at that point, Gladden puts his glove down and runs to the wall and catches it off the wall. So, and, yeah, amazing, and, amazing stuff. And Gladden scored the uh, the game winning run, correct? That's correct. Gene and Larkin got the the base hit, or 
Was yeah, Gene Larkin, Larkin got yeah. the base hit, and and this is where I find it interesting. Tom Kelly, the Twins manager, he loved his veterans, mm-hmm. and he put Larkin up there, one out. You know, they load the bases, but pretty much Gladden's the run that matters on third base. But I didn't realize coming back and talking to these guys years later, Larkin's knee was in bad, bad shape. Never. If he'd hit the ball on the ground, easy double play. Yeah, but, never knew it. Never knew that. You know, yeah. one other player that wouldn't have stood out to me, but in looking quickly at the box scores, Rick Aguilera had two wins and two saves in that mm-hmm. series. That's pretty unusual. I, I doubt that that's won. ever happened. No, I don't think that's ever happened. And he almost won Game 7 earlier because they – no, I believe it was Game 6. Everything game six, was all mixed yeah. up and pitch you know, pitch hitter. He got the pinch hit. Right. And almost drove in the winning run. <laughs> it just kind of stayed up in the air a little too much. And uh, I think it was Justice out in right field caught it. And uh, But Aguilera is like – you know, he's a very interesting guy because it was funny. It's, I love these books where I can go back in time and talk with these players 20, 30 years after it's happened. Summer of 68, which I did a lot with mm-hmm. uh, the Tigers and the Cardinals off the 68 World Series. Because it's almost, you, you know, they're kind of rediscovering their past, too. And it's yeah. funny, you bring up Aguilera's stat line, and then talking with Aguilera, we were talking for a while, and how the Bluey just kind of went, I had a real good series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You had an awesome series. But he's not going to, you know, he's still kind of locked in. Okay, game five was this, game six was this. And all of a sudden he kind of is able to put his head up and look around and go, I did pretty good. And then, you know, it's funny to kind of bring that to somebody. We're talking with Timmy Wendell. Timmy is part of the writer's program at Johns Hopkins University. He's written many books on baseball, including the Summer 68, High Heat, The New Face of Baseball, which talked about the infusion of so much Latin talent into the big leagues. And this book, uh, which originally came out, what year did it, uh, Down to the Last Pitch come out in? Uh, down to the Last Pitch, I believe, came out in 2014. 14, we should have right. saved it for the anniversary. I, yep. I always mess up anniversaries. So, na- <laughs> so now this audio book is out and available, would make a great gift for a baseball fan out there. It's called Down to the Last Pitch. It's on audio books. And doesn't audiobooks, it looks like right now, has some kind of incredible deal that if you yeah. sign up, uh, you get your first one free? Yeah, very much. If you if you aren't you know, on with Audible, uh, first of all, I'd recommend you to do it, especially if you're spending any time in the car. It's become a lifesaver for me. Um, but, yeah, right now, if you um, there's, there's a link. You look it down to the last pitch, click on it, and you're, in a sense, getting on board with Audible and First book's free, and frankly, once you're on board, they're going to give you a credit for a free book every month, too. So it's, That uh, sounds good. It's a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for coming on and talking about such a personal memoir, The Cancer Crossings. I've got one curveball I want to throw you, though, is because <laughs> you are such a great observer of the game. Um, your thoughts on this investigation into the Houston Astros and, and the ethics of, of trying to, to not only cheat – but use the technology to help cheat. Uh, if it's in fact true, what type of penalty do you think is appropriate? Mm, made some draft picks, things like that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a little torn, Stan, because part of me is always thinking, well, what's the old adage? If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Yeah, but if, um, if you're not rubbing, it's, you're not racing and yeah, in auto racing. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you know, somehow you're, you're not, not in the fast lane, so to speak. But I, I'm. 
I'm stunned a little bit. When the Nats won the World Series, I heard from uh, several people who I respect in the game of baseball who, who weren't connected with either club. Right. You know? um, but they were glad and, that Houston lost? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was a little dumbfounded at first, and finally I asked one of them, why are you so worked up about this? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you had no skin in this game, so mm-hmm. to speak. And, and his response was, because those guys aren't doing it the right way. Yeah. And that's been the buzz for a long time. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I, I found it amazing they did not send any scouts, in a sense, to the NLCS and things yeah. like that. There seems to be approach there that we know the numbers where our way is best, and it's rubbed a lot of people in baseball the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, I'm good friends with Hank Allen, who I'm sure you've come, mm-hmm. you know crossed paths with uh, you know, the hurt that they cause, I'm not saying you don't have the right to, to hire and fire whoever you want, but doing it that year in 17, like they let them know that they were not going to be back in September of 17, that they mm-hmm. wouldn't be back as scouts. Seemed like a, just a terrible uh, way to handle that. To and, me. and the whole approach I find, I, I, I don't like tanking, yeah. especially if you're somewhat admitting it too. Yeah. Um, and I get a little concerned now because we just we just had a season well with the Orioles, Tigers. I forgot who else had a terrible year. Yeah, Kansas, you know, Kansas City had a terrible yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, and, and Miami. They, yeah, everybody seems to be embracing tanking. I don't think tanking is going to work every time, and so I kind of look back at the Astros, kind of being the poster child for that in some way. Certainly, it worked for them, but simply because it worked for them doesn't mean like four or five, a half dozen clubs can embrace this and suddenly they're all going to be top of their division or something in a couple of years. And, and I think some fans are going to be really, really disappointed. You know, not to get too far afield on this thing, but the, the, the inference of the type of arrogance surrounding the Astros with that assistant general manager, mm-hmm. why he felt it was necessary in front of three female reporters one who had been critical of them signing a uh, trading for Osuna uh, had, I mean, that, that kind of arrogance, it was really uh, very odd, very odd. Yeah. It's yeah. unfortunate. It's unfortunate. That's what the franchise, I think in many ways, at least the folks I talk to within baseball is getting known for. Yeah. And uh, that's not good. Hey, Timmy, it's great to catch up with you. We'll do it again sometime. All right. Oh, that'd be awesome. Great to chat with you again, Stan. All Miss right. you, Ben. Again, the down to the last put, pitch, down to the last pitch. It's now available in audio books. Thank you, Timmy Wendell.